0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Supply Chain Podcast. Thank you for joining us. So, to start off, would you be able to introduce yourself? Tell me a bit about your career journey so far and how you found yourself at the company today.
1: Sure. Yeah, so I'm Eric Hudson. I'm the CEO of Twin Thread. Um, been working in, in the uh, industrial automation and uh, manufacturing space for uh 25 years um started off my career as a chemical engineer process engineer working in uh, the pulp and paper industry and went on to actually form a company uh, my first company in the uh, early 90s that uh, did manufacturing optimization starting off in the pulp and paper industry but then expanding into Many other industries, including you know food and beverage, consumer products, automotive uh, energy and, and other um, actually, the first company I've, I formed uh, was sold to General Electric and today forms the basis of their what they call their brilliant factory or their uh, uh, basically their manufacturing. Uh, software automation platform that's, uh, used in, um, probably 4,000 plants across the world today. Um, so after, after selling, uh, our first company to General Electric, um, I, I left and then, uh, General Electric asked me to come back and run their industrial software business. Um, so, which included the business that I had sold to GE plus other, other um, businesses in that, in that portfolio. And so we, we did a lot of uh, manufacturing automation, but, but also a lot of automation in critical infrastructure industries like energy and water one of the projects that my team uh, worked on at General Electric was the re-architecture of a a system that uh, was basically collecting data from all of the the GE-based technology power plants in the world that uh, for the purpose of helping customers Uh, protect them from catastrophic failures on equipment like big gas turbines, but also helping those customers improve efficiency and fuel economy. The project was was very, very successful and led into a lot of the commitments that GE made in forming their business that's now called GE Digital. Um, And so I left left GE and uh, went back into the startup world and, and formed a, a couple other companies. The latest company is is TwinThread, and and really the idea of TwinThread is is to provide similar capabilities that GE used to monitor and optimize uh, a fleet of of power plants, gas turbines. Throughout the world to be able to apply sort of similar concepts to other industries like manufacturing, consumer products, food and beverage, automotive—all those industries that that we had uh, deep experience early in early in my career uh, around. So that's uh, that's really what uh, brings us up to the the twin thread era. <laughs>
0: That brings us up to date. So within your career journey, how have you seen the industry change and how has any of your previous experience shaped your approach to this role?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting and good question. I think um, from my perspective, there's, there's been increasing scope of automation that you see in, the, in manufacturing and in just industrial uh, applications in the in the early days let's say in the um in the mid 90s it was really about putting in technology to optimize a single production line and then in the early 2000s it became putting in technologies to optimize a full facility a full plant or a a, a full network of of assets and then um in later in the 2010 type time period you saw industries like um, power generation and oil and gas in particular putting in automation technology to 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 really to automate an enterprise so to automate many sites many uh many thousands of assets and really do that um, um efficiently and so really today it is is about taking what has been, I would say, proven in industries like uh, power generation and energy to uh, many industries uh, where companies can optimize uh, their whole enterprise of facilities and assets uh, together, Um, whereas historically, it's maybe been about optimizing a single line or optimizing a single plant. Today, it really, really is the modern operating strategy is about optimizing a whole network of of assets and uh, equipment to work to work together.
0: Okay, so a more collaborative approach. Next, I wanted to ask you, what do you consider the essential traits of an effective leader with a specific emphasis on the current situation?
1: Yeah, I think that's a, that's an important question. Um, I know personally. My style has always been to provide a vision. I think it's you know it's important to for any leader to provide a vision of how things can be, but at the same time is willing to roll up their sleeves and dig in and actually solve problems at a detailed level. I know the the culture of of twin thread and and the culture of Many of the companies that, that I admire, it's it's whether you're the CEO or whether you're an entry-level engineer, there's a willingness to to dive in and solve problems. And you know, for the important problems, there's no position in the company or role that's above diving in and helping solve customers' problems um, and work on a customer's behalf. So I I think, especially now in the times we're going through, the the companies that are going to succeed are, you know, the the companies that that aren't too proud to to dive in and and solve problems, no matter what level they exist and, and no matter what role you're coming from.
0: Next, I was wondering how the leadership style you've developed has evolved over your career and what has been the biggest contributions to this?
1: Yeah, I think um, going back to what I was describing earlier that the scope of automation, let's say, that has increased over time from being kind of isolated in a single facility and a single line to today, it's about, you know, optimizing a whole network of, of equipment and assets, you know, what I've, what I've recognized and, and also, having worked in very small companies and also very large companies is that, uh, is that what, what we're working on, you know, together can move the needle. Um, and you know, that's, that's sort of influenced my strategy and influenced the technology that we've chosen to focus on is, you know, if I use the example of the general electric and the, Optimizing the uh, power plant fuel economy, for example, you know, making a very small change, a 1% impact on 23% of the world's electric power supply, it makes a big difference. So, a small change can make a, a massive difference in the overall efficiency of, of how the world is operating. And so, I think, you know, from a leadership perspective, and strategy perspective it's providing a vision for for all companies to to chase that one or two percent efficiency and do that at an enterprise scale and this is something that that obviously has impact for shareholders of those companies and impact on profitability of those companies but also has a big big impact on the world if if we can all be every year getting one or two percent more efficient. And doing that at an enterprise scale—that's that's a lot of what's sort of driving what we're trying to achieve at TwinThread, and also what I think drives us as leaders in the, in the industry is that is that concept.
0: So, would you say that is TwinThread's digital innovation and transformation approach? Yeah.
1: It, it is. I think there's there's maybe more to it, it in terms of the digital innovation and in, so if if our vision is to be able to optimize sort of on a global basis uh, and squeeze one or 2% more efficiency out of a out of manufacturing operation or a, a network of assets, it really, the enabler is algorithms and the power of things like machine learning to, to make that practical. We have a customer, for example, that is, monitoring 450 data centers across the world, and they're doing that with just a a few people. And the only way that becomes practical, and the only way to make that uh, economically feasible, is if you apply algorithms and and machine learning technologies to, to make that not only practical, but to really find the opportunities to to innovate and to make things more efficient is is only enabled through some of these new technologies. Um, Otherwise, you'd have to have hundreds or maybe even thousands of people that are uh, looking after those assets and and that equipment. But if you can automate it using algorithms, it becomes economically feasible, economically um, large potential benefits from that.
2: So,
0: with these strategies and approaches in mind, how important do you think it is to ensure you have the right culture and almost mindset within the organization before you attempt strategy?
1: Yeah, it's it's critical, really. It's um, maybe it's a bit of a cliche, but really, the executive buy-in, sponsorship, commitment to any kind of digital transformation effort is essential. And it's maybe that's maybe that's obvious. Um, but may, what, what potentially is less obvious is that um, in terms of the culture and mindset, in this new sort of digital age and, and really with the, with the incorporation of machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies into this, into this game, leaders have to think about in, in terms of their change management strategy, how do I get the IT person to work with the data scientists, to work with the subject matter experts, the engineers that really, really understand the equipment and the data scientists that really, really understands the algorithms and the IT person who really, really understands how all the data is collected and managed. So, I mean, I think that's that's a really important aspect is is, as a... preparing for these groups of folks that, you know, honestly don't naturally work together to bring them together into these cross-functional teams to attack some of these, some of those uh, business problems using, using digital technology.
0: So what would you say are the current trends that you're seeing within the industry and how important do you think technology is within them?
1: Well, we're obviously very biased in that, given that we're a technology company and we're focused on, you know, applying uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence technologies to to industry. <laughs> um, but it really is a really is a hot topic, and um, uh, there was a recent uh, uh, Harvard Business Review article that that suggested that, you know, eighty eighty four percent of of uh, leaders believe they should be implementing uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning based technologies. Um, only 16% ha- actually have a program that's, that's deploying that technology. So there's a huge gap between desire and hype, if you will, and, and the folks that are actually implementing. The, the trend in applying that technology is clear, but the trends of how to actually get moving and get started and start deploying that technology, those trends are only just emerging right now. And that same article suggested that the Harvard Business Review article, their, their reference also suggested that companies, you know, that are succeeding in that, in the application of this technology are doing a couple things. You know, one of them is the cross-functional teams that, that I mentioned, but the other one is simply making the commitment and putting the technology in production as a first step and maybe at a small scale and growing it, but just getting it into production and getting it into use is, is separating what those that are just sort of talking about it versus those that are actually applying and benefiting from it. And instead of experimenting in the, you know, in the lab environment, let's say, in a non-production environment. So some of the trends that we're seeing is uh, companies are, are figuring out how to form the right teams. Um, and, and we see a trend of folks bringing together the data scientists, the engineers, and the, and the IT folks. And the other trend is folks that are figuring out how to do how to apply this technology, make it successful, and then then scale it.
0: Would you be able to talk me through the concepts of connected fleets and connected factories in terms of the technology involved and any benefits and challenges?
1: Yeah, so let's start within manufacturing. There's a couple innovations, um, or let's say that there's a couple layers of the technology. Some are very, very new. Some are... Some have been around for a very long time and have been underutilized up, up to this point. So within manufacturing in the mid-90s, it's it starting in, in industries like oil and gas industry and the energy industry. Companies started investing in a lot of sensor technology and, and the technology to record that sensor data and to store it for a very long time periods. So that the so the uh, the historian, as they're called, industry sort of came in vogue in the in the mid '90s, and up through uh, let's say the mid 2000s, uh, expanded to virtually all industries, from let's say the continuous process industries like uh, energy and power generation to the not continuous in hybrid industries like food and beverage and consumer products and, and so forth. So that that meant that um, there are literally billions of sensors that are already being that have already been deployed that are already collecting data, and, and in some cases there's decades of that data that's been collected and archived. And now if we fast forward to, to t- today, it's really about how do you mine new insights from that information that's already been, already been collected and archived and, and in some cases for decades. And that's really the innovation of cloud computing and, uh, art and machine learning tools that can be applied at scale. Because as I said, you know, there's, there's billions of sensors that have, and you know trillions of data points, if you want to think of it that way, that's already been collected. So that's one, one innovation. Another innovation, which is more what you hear about today is, well, there's also cheap sensors. They're much cheaper today. And we're deploying sensors in places that wasn't feasible to deploy them previously and so we're starting to collect that data um, and so in addition to this being this huge pool of already collected information and then getting new insights from that pool of information there's a whole other category of stuff that's happening in in industry that's coming from new sensors that had never been deployed before because they're really you know too expensive and so there's a whole new pool of insights uh, that are coming from that set of data that's, that's coming out there, and that that kind of segues into the connected fleet concept. So everything I talked about previously was really about manufacturing and process industries and the investments that, that those industries had made over decades now g- given um, Two sort of innovations: one being inexpensive sensors, and the other being now less expensive. Um, I, I would say bordering on inexpensive communication uh, technologies, whether that be uh, you know wireless and or 5G networks and and such. It's just getting much more feasible to collect. Uh, information from assets and equipment than, than it ever was before so the idea that when i make a piece of equipment if i'm a if i'm a machine builder and i make um, a piece of equipment that is a, a filler for a let's say a food and beverage bottle filling type piece of equipment i'm as a manufacturer of that equipment it's now feasible for me to not only install all the sensors on that equipment, which has been done for a very long time, but the piece that is new is, now I can have a a cost-effective pathway to collect all that information from that equipment and bring it back to the home office. So I can have a fleet of, of equipment in the field that I have my own sort of data collection infrastructure that I can now see real time how my products and how my equipment is performing for my customers. And that's, that um, is becoming more and more commonplace. You know, that concept started on really, really expensive pieces of equipment, like the equipment I described at at GE. The typical gas turbine is about a $100 million investment. And of course, for a $100 million piece of equipment, you can afford a lot of sensors and you can afford a lot of communication technology, and you can afford a lot of stuff to, to help run that piece of equipment better. But what if it's a, a $10,000 piece of equipment? It's not a $100 million piece of equipment. But it's critical, that $10,000 piece of equipment is critical to that customer's operation. Well, now it's, it's feasible to have that $10,000 piece of equipment have all the right sensors on it, have all the communication pathways to be able to collect that data and bring that back to the to the home office to let the product engineers that work on that equipment uh, see how their design is is uh, performing in the field real time and to service that equipment and to provide warranty on that equipment. Just uh, the possibilities um, are are really exploding in in that space around the connected fleets of equipment um, just because the cost of the sensors and the the communication has come down so much.
0: Perfect, so would you be able to talk me through some of those concepts such as industrial internet, digital platforms and predictive operations?
1: Yeah, so let's let's start with the predictive operations and um, you know part of our thesis or Part of the vision that we have is that a modern operating strategy is one where um, a company can optimize their their whole enterprise of assets and do that efficiently. So it's it's, it's no longer about optimizing a single plant or a single line. It's really how do you optimize the performance of of all of your all of your assets and and do that efficiently. So you know, going back to some of the examples I provided earlier, in the um, in the mid 2000 time period, it would be common to see in the power industry this concept of an enterprise control room, uh, literally mission control, and you could everyone can picture sort of the the idea of like the NASA mission control center. So a big room with a whole bunch of big TVs on the screens on the wall where you can get this really real time bird's eye view of everything that's happening with that mission. We saw that in the power industry in the mid 2000s um, where where power companies were putting in these mission control centers that allowed them to monitor and control all of their assets whether it was a wind farm uh, coupled with their thermal power generation cu- coupled with maybe in these days their 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 battery storage you know operations really uh, to have an enterprise wide real time view of of their operations and to be able to apply the right resources at the right time to solve the most challenging problems not just within a single facility or within a single plan but to do that really across the enterprise in real time and the concept that we're driving towards is really the the same concept applied to other industries that had not adopted that sort of mission control concept and you know industries including the food and beverage and consumer products and and automotive and and uh, just gen- general manufacturing to bring that concept and, and to have the technology th- to make that feasible within those industries there's there there's a number of reasons why we saw that concept take off in power first and then it's been longer to be adopted in, in, in other industries, such as consumer products, because the processes are much, much more complex. You know, you know power plant is, is complex, but it is a continuous process. It's, it's, for the most part, it's designed to run, you know, 24 by seven, you know, uh, 365 days a year and run the same way. Whereas, um, in consumer products type industries, it's much more dynamic. They're making many more products under many more operating conditions and have much more complex supply chains. So um, there's, there's a reason why it's taken longer for that concept to, to, take on, to be taken on within these other industries. And so what we're trying to do is to make that much more feasible to adopt in these in these industries with more complex supply chains and more complex products that, that, that they're making to be able to have this mission control concept, uh, the predictive operations center be applied in, in those industries. And the, the last thing I'll mention here is the predictive part. It's, you know, it's, it's one thing to be able to look backwards and say, these were the problems that i had these and this is uh i applied these resources and i was able to problem solve through things in a in a backward looking way it's it's another to be able to look forward and to anticipate where the problems might be and to be able to act before those problems manifest themselves and that can be you know you that that concept can be applied at way down at a very granular level within, uh, let's say, a manufacturing organization. It can be looking at a single line and saying, these are the things that are likely to shut this particular production line down. And so therefore, we need to act to prevent that line from going down and disrupting the supply chain. uh, And doing that in a predictive and proactive way is, is much, much more impactful than simply looking backwards and understanding what happened in the past better. Now there's value in that. There's a lot of value in looking backwards and understanding what went wrong and what went right. But it is a whole new level of value to be able to look forward and anticipate problems and to, and to have strategies in place deal with problems real time in a proactive and predictive way.
0: Is there any sort of innovations or um, approaches or strategies or anything like that that you would like to see being um, driven within the industry um, in the future?
1: Yeah, I think um, from from a twin-thread perspective and what we're trying to achieve, particularly as it relates to AI and machine learning, is that A way way to describe it is this, is that in in any natural evolution of technology, that, uh, or technology adoption curve, let's say, at the low end, at the very beginning of that adoption curve, the technology is sort of deployed as a tool set or as as a building block for building an application, something that a company that wants to take advantage of that technology like AI and machine learning has to take a tool set and they have to do their own development work to turn it into an actual application that delivers value. What we're trying to, to drive is to take those building blocks and actually create applications out of them so that customers can just deploy the application that solves the problem without having to build a bunch of stuff based on a tool set. so it's uh, the ability to harness the what is immense power in ai and machine learning particularly for the for the industries that were that we're trying to help the the gate if you will is how much development you know, basically, how much R&D work do you need to do in order to benefit from it? And how fast can you get it deployed and actually delivering value? And so what we're trying to do is to eliminate the development time so that customers can get straight to deploying and straight to getting value. Now, there's, there's, two, uh, there's an upside and a downside to that approach that we're, that we're taking. Um, The upside in uh, delivering these AI and machine learning applications is that it's very fast time to value. The downside potentially is that it's the the applications that we're delivering aren't infinite in what they do. They are focused in specific areas like predictive energy efficiency, predictive uh, uptime, you know, predictive quality. And so we're, it's really the only way that you can deliver the, these technologies with speed is if you choose a, a challenge, build an application for that challenge, and then scale that out. And that's why we've chosen this approach of we're not going to do everything, but we're going to focus on the top six or ten challenges that we know that customers that are in the industries that we're focused on have and to be able to to allow them to deploy these ai technologies and do it with speed and do it without having to do a a lot of uh, research and development work
0: thank you so currently the world is facing widespread disruption what challenges have you faced within the industry and specifically within your organization because of it and how have the industry and your company had to evolve in response?
1: Yeah, it's great it's a great question. Um, yeah, it's, it's been very disruptive, obviously. For us, Twinthread and how we work, we're very used to working remote and, and connecting with customers remotely and uh, really having um, you know minimal sort of need to be in a facility and, you know, face-to-face, if you will. Um, there's obviously upsides and downsides of that. You know, we, we, do, we do miss getting in front of customers uh, in, in sort of sales meetings and, and uh, strategy sessions and things like that, but it really hasn't disrupted our day to day work in terms of building out the technology in terms of working with customers that's kind of always been very remote now our customers, on the other hand are I, I would say that they they fall in uh, into two categories and in very extreme uh, very very extreme like nothing in the middle between they're virtually shut down and you know, uh, they're not, they're not operating or they're operating at a very, very, very low, uh, percent utilization and they're operating 110%. And ironically, you know, there's challenges in, in both of those extremes, um, companies that, that really are, uh, can't produce fast enough. Uh, they are hundred percent focused on, production and maybe over over the last several months have been less focused on on innovation and uh, less focused on installing new technologies and and such because they're hundred percent dedicated to you know producing the next product um, and then of course those that have been really just very much disrupted and our and our low utilization, you know, have a have an opposite challenge. But I, I see it. I see it turning around quickly and that um, Number one, the Those that are that were, let's say, temporarily un- underutilized or, or barely running are coming back online again and the, the companies that are that are running uh, over capacity let's say are are now picking their head up and saying you know we still have to we still have to move forward on the, on technology we still have to figure out how to get one or two percent more efficient we still have to save energy we still have to do all those things that we that they had to do you know six months ago so but moving forward our customers are trying to figuring out how to do that. you know how can they support their engineers working from home, putting the tools in the engineers' hands to allow them to optimize a facility or hopefully multiple facilities doing it from their living room um, we We think we're we're right in the middle of that solving that problem, um, and I would say the only feasible way that we can move forward and drive efficiency and continue to move that, that forward is to enable the problem solvers, the engineers, the subject matter experts out there with the right digital tools and technologies and algorithms to allow them to be effective in a remote operating sense. And so from that perspective, we think we're perfectly positioned to, to enable that that concept.
0: Thank you. Um, what technological innovations and implementations have you seen emerge particularly as a result of COVID-19, if you have seen any?
1: Yeah, I think it's, it's working remote. Um, you know, we've seen over the last 20 years actually, companies started experimenting let's say, in being able to run manufacturing facilities remotely, you know let, let's say they, they have a uh, they start experimenting putting in a control room in one facility that actually controlled three or four facilities, and as I said, you know we've seen that happen over the last decade or so of companies that are experimenting with that and you know, we we see companies that are just really accelerating that concept of, of being able to operate and manage remotely. And so uh, maybe a cliche at this point in time, we've heard many say that we're going to see, you know, the next decade of innovation packed into the next two or three years. I mean, I really, really see that happening is companies that maybe were experimenting in this concept of being able to to really manage and control their operations remotely, we're going to see that ac- accelerate at an unbelievable pace here. Um, and we're starting to see that happen now as, as, as companies are sort of picking their head up from, from wherever they were, whether they were shut down from COVID or whether they were way over capacity from COVID, we're seeing them pick their head ups and now say, how, how are we going to operate and what, what's going to be a new normal here?
0: You slightly touched on this in a previous question, but what do you think the future will look like for you as a company, but also the industry in general, if there is a, an after COVID-19, what do you think those particular first steps will be?
1: Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, a, a dynamic that, that has been happening in the manufacturing industry well before COVID, but it, it certainly accelerates a bunch with, with COVID, is you know the, the brain drain, the, the really experienced operators, experienced maintenance technicians, experienced engineers with 20 and 30 years of experience are retiring or are, are moving on and there's this vast uh, knowledge base that that is going offline. And and, and again, everyone's aware of this and, and everyone is thinking about how to deal with this. But the COVID situation really, really does accelerate that to with with tremendous urgency. Where uh, companies have to think about how do they do two things. One is digitize the knowledge that if it's not captured, it's going to it's going to go offline. And secondarily, how do we how do we make the operators, the engineers, the the technicians? How do we make them? the ones that are still around and still uh, not, not leaving the workforce and not going offline, how do we make them more effective and you know, what the tools that we need to give them. And, and so what we want the future to look like is that as that every manufacturing company is thinking about how do they give their engineers and subject matter experts, superpowers moving forward here. How do they scale their expertise? And you know, we wanna help them with that. And I, I'd say the last thing, which is more of a, I don't wanna say controversial thought, but maybe those engineers with, with 20 to 30 years deep experience in manufacturing maybe they don't actually have to leave the workforce. If we can give them a way to work very conveniently from their living room and add their knowledge and value to help keep the manufacturing industry running well and make it very convenient for them, maybe they don't have to fully retire. maybe they don't have to fully exit the workforce. If we give them ways to work remotely and work conveniently and ways to really impart their knowledge and their, their expertise, maybe, uh, maybe they don't have to leave the
0: workforce. Perfect, um, thank you. That's it for my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention that we haven't discussed at all?
1: Uh, I don't know, Steve, what do, you, what do you think?
2: There's one thing that's really, uh... Unique about Twin Thread that I think is worth touching on is that because we're we're able to grab so much of this information and historical data and pile it on top of new data to show our clients things that they've never seen before, we really do stand behind this this uh, results are guaranteed position. We really we really have seen everywhere and where we can implement this that things are uncovered that hadn't been considered perceived or observed before. And even more importantly, we share ways to operationalize that. So, so Eric, I would say, if there's anything that you would like to touch and build upon, I think that is a valid, valid differentiator, especially in this industry.
1: Yeah, I think that that's great. Yeah. The, um, results, results are guaranteed concept. Um, you know, it's, I would say amongst others that are, that are working in this space, it's a significant differentiator in what we're doing. And the enabler for that is, as I mentioned earlier, the, the fact that we have these pre-built applications that someone can just take and apply and, and as Steve mentioned, get insights Uh, potentially very, very valuable insights without having to go through a long deployment, a long development, a long, you know, fill in the blank process, something that, uh, you know, could be, could be a reality in days. And that is, that is really unheard of in our industry and, and particularly in this AI and machine learning space it's unheard of and, and that's, why we, that's why we are talking about and messaging around this guaranteed results concept. Um, and that, that's really to just urge people to get started and because the risk is very, very low and the potential gain is, is very, very high.
2: I would even say we embrace the opportunity to deploy pilot projects that deliver proof of value for outcomes, and, and, and that as well is very, very unique. Um, because in doing so, we want to roadmap a fund the future uh, opportunity for our customers, not just that here's a picture of what the data is, go do something with it. We want to pencil it out uh, to show the economics that this is a fundable way to get to the, to the outcomes that they desire.
0: Uh, Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to discuss at all or is there any questions that you have for us before we finish?
2: No, I think we're good.
0: Okay, well Eric, thank you for taking the time to speak with me today.